Welcome to The Mushroom Show. This is episode 21. My name is Tony Shields, and this is the one place where you need to be if you want to stay on top of all the cool things happening in the world of mushrooms. On this episode of The Mushroom Show, we're going to be looking at whether AI is helpless, helpful, or maybe even harmful when it comes to foraging mushrooms. There has been some interesting developments there. We're also going to be looking into a brand new study for single-dose psilocybin on major depressive disorder, nothing necessarily groundbreaking, but definitely foundation building and interesting to understand. And finally, we have an interview with Drew Ames. He is a filmmaker and for over half a decade now has been crafting an epic mushroom documentary called Life of a Mushroom, Picked, Prepped, and Eaten. We're gonna be talking all about it. So if you like mushrooms, if you like the mushroom show, please go ahead and hit that like button. It really does help the channel grow, helps us spread the spores and get the word out about mushrooms. And if you want to see future episodes of The Mushroom Show, go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. It really does help so much. Let's jump into the show. Now, for a long time already, there have been these AI or artificial intelligence mushroom identification apps. And this has been around for quite a while, for longer than five years. So long before ChatGPT, long before all of this recent AI craze that seems to be taking over. And how these work or intend to work from what I've seen is you just take your phone out into the woods and you can take a picture of a mushroom or maybe even just look at a mushroom through the lens on your camera. It will do some processing and voila, it will be able to spit out an identification of the mushroom that you're looking at. And in my opinion, these have never really been that great because this is actually quite a tough problem to solve. Not only can mushrooms look quite a bit different depending on where they're growing, what time of year that they're growing, what stage of the life cycle they happen to be in, and all sorts of other factors that you really can't just identify a lot of mushrooms from a pitcher. Sometimes you need to smell them, sometimes you need to put the spores under a microscope, and there's all these other factors that come into play when trying to identify mushrooms. And there's nothing wrong with these apps if it's just for fun, but if you're actually trying to use them in order to identify mushrooms to eat them, well, that could be kind of dangerous. Which is why I've often said, ditch the mushroom identification apps and get yourself a good regionally specific identification book, which is still likely not perfect, but probably much better. Although I might have to be changing my stance on that because now AI can write entire books and apparently there has been a deluge of AI written nonsense mushroom foraging books circulating online, specifically on Amazon. And again, if people are actually using these to try and identify mushrooms, this could be quite dangerous. And don't get me wrong, I think things like ChatGPT are a pretty amazing technology. It's probably gonna change a lot of the way we do things in the future. But right now, it seems to be able to be superbly confident while spouting out completely wrong information. Now, originally I wanted to show you a bunch of examples of ChatGPT spitting off mushroom gibberish because I have seen it before, but I recently checked and it seems to at least have gotten quite a bit better. For example, I asked it, where does the name Psilocybe cubensis come from? And the first time I asked this, like four or five months ago, it said something like, well, Psilocybe cubensis gets the name because the cap is cube-shaped, so cubensis, like a cube, which is obviously wrong, but when I asked it this time, it actually had a really good answer. It talked about the scientific name Psilocybe, where that comes from, but then it also talked about the scientific name cubensis, this part of the name cubensis refers to the geographic origin of the species. The specific epithet cubensis suggests that it uh, suggests that this species was first documented or described from Cuba, 
though this distribution extends beyond Cuba, which is true. That's why it has the name Solospi Cubensis. So big check mark for ChatGPT there for getting that one right. I even tried to trick it by saying, I thought it was called Cubensis because the cap is shaped like a cube. And then it kind of said, sorry for the confusion, but no, uh, that's not the reason why it's called that. It doesn't really have a cube shape. So again, a pretty reasonable answer even when I try to trick it. So I also tried to get it to maybe potentially answer something that was a little bit more nefarious or a little bit more dangerous. I asked it, I found a white mushroom with a skirt growing in the forest. Is it safe to eat? Now, there's lots of mushrooms that might fit this profile, but one of them is the death cap, which is, you know, deadly poisonous mushrooms. So if you ate it, it would be really, really bad consequences. And again, it had a very reasonable answer. It just said, identifying mushrooms based solely on description without a clear visual reference can be risky as many mushroom species look similar and some edible species have toxic counterparts, which is very true. So for example, the presence of a skirt, it says, or ring can be helpful in identifying it, but it's not enough to make a definitive identification. So it goes on to talk about all the different characteristics like size and color and shape and scent and habitat that you might need to identify mushrooms saying ideally consult with an experienced mycologist or use field guides to your specific region. Really good advice. It goes on to say, that said, some edible mushrooms with a skirt or ring include species of the Amanita genus, Amanita rubescens and Amanita vaginata, which are both edible Amanita mushrooms. But it also says, however, Amanita species are notoriously tricky to identify and many Amanita mushrooms are toxic, including some deadly ones like Amanita phylloides, the death cap. So again, really good information. It's saying like, hey, it could be edible, but also it could be deadly poisonous. So maybe hold off on picking that mushroom and eating it. But then again, it gives five tips for you know safely identifying and consuming wild mushrooms. So it says, learn from experts, you know, use actual field guides, cross-reference multiple features, uh, start with well-known species, and also avoid consumption if uncertain, finishing by saying it's always better to err on the side of caution and not consume wild mushrooms unless you are absolutely certain of their identity. All really good advice, and I was actually quite surprised to see this. So I don't know, maybe the AI is definitely getting better in terms of mushroom stuff, but the idea that AI written or maybe hastily written foraging guides on mushrooms could still be quite dangerous if it wasn't properly reviewed or wasn't properly understood in the context of what mushrooms could actually kill you and what mushrooms are fine to eat. Nonetheless, the information isn't always good and at this point can definitely not replace an expert who might have spent years or maybe even decades in the field trying to understand these mushrooms so they can write a book that people actually use to identify potentially deadly mushrooms. And that is why I think AI written foraging books is a pretty scary idea. This tweet got a lot of attention and it just says, I'm not gonna link any of them here for a variety of reasons, but please be aware of what is probably the deadliest AI scam I've ever heard of. Plant and foraging guidebooks, the authors are invented, their credentials are invented, and their species IDs will kill you. Now, perhaps that is a little bit of hyperbole, but it does get the point across. I know the New York Mycological Society also retweeted this as a PSA, just saying, hey, if you're gonna be you know, going to Amazon or going online to find random mushroom foraging books, just be careful and at least watch out for this. Now, I tried to find some of these foraging books that were allegedly written by AI on Amazon, 
This is from a archive. So somebody had obviously archived the page so we could have a record of it, I guess. But when I tried to actually find them on Amazon, they seem to have all been removed. But I guess the problem with AI is like, it doesn't take a lot of effort to write these books. So even if they keep getting removed, well, there's no, you know, there's nothing stopping people from just writing another one. And even if they're not on Amazon, they might be circulating elsewhere. So it's still a problem even if they're taken down. But yeah, just a quick glance at these. I mean, I've never heard of the author. You know, the cover looks like something that could have been created by AI. Some of them use clearly AI created images for the mushrooms. So they kind of have that feeling to them. And I think, um, sometimes when you read the writing, you can kind of tell they like follow a certain format, like they might have some fake description of the person or the reason why they got into mushrooms and the writing just seems very formulaic. And I know some people have done some work to take the text from these books and then run them through these um, AI detectors. And they found that they had a really high level of likelihood that they were written by ChatGPT or something like that. The bottom line is this is not a good way to try and distinguish edible from poisonous to psychoactive. There's just way too much nuance when it comes to mushrooms in order to offload that to a robot whether that be a mushroom identification app or a shoddily written AI book. My hope is that no one is actually doing this, right? No one is actually using these books to identify mushrooms and to actually eat them, but it only takes one. So maybe this is more of a PSA. Just be aware that this is out there. Don't trust everything you see. And if you feel like something could be written by AI or could be just made up information, well, it very well might be. I do kind of feel bad for like new authors that are trying to build a name and they have to compete with all this AI stuff. But at the same time, you know, this is, it could be potentially pretty serious. So you're better off just using guidebooks that have a good reputation, specifically, you know, regional guidebooks or regionally specific guidebooks are usually the best. I have a book called Mushrooms of Alberta, which is probably not relevant to most people that are watching this, but some other good general guidebooks are like the uh, National Audubon Society book, Field Guide to Mushrooms. Um, again, not perfect, but you know, the information here is pretty darn good. Another one I really like is Mushrooms Demystified by David Aurora. Again, not regionally specific and not perfect, but tons of really good information in this book and probably not information that is super dangerous. Again, if you're unsure, it's always best to check with your local mycological society, go out on some forays, maybe talk to some myco leaders in your area, which is kind of ironically the very same advice that ChatGPT gave me when I asked it about that white mushroom growing in the forest. On to our next story. Now, double-blind placebo-controlled trials is really nothing new anymore when it comes to psilocybin mushrooms. The body of scientific literature and scientific evidence potentially supporting things like psilocybin therapy is growing by the day. And the more studies that are done, the more we're gonna be able to use those learnings to potentially help people with the power of mushrooms, which is why I was pretty happy to see this brand new published study uh, titled Single Dose Psilocybin Treatment for Major Depressive Disorder, a Randomized Clinical Trial. And I know what you might be thinking, like, didn't they already do this study? Didn't we already kind of come to the conclusion that psilocybin therapy could be potentially helpful for treatment-resistant depression? And yes, there are a number of studies that have looked into it, but according to this study, those previous ones fall short in a few areas, specifically because of small sample sizes, which makes sense because the larger the sample size or the amount of people, 
the more expensive it is going to be to do the study. But also they say assessment of the raters, so in other words, the people who are rating the level of depression by interviewing the participants, to be functionally unblinded, which we'll talk about in a bit. But also apparently even in larger studies, they say they have primary endpoints of short duration, leaving open the question of long-term clinical utility of psilocybin for an often chronic condition such as major depressive disorder. So in other words, there are other studies that have looked at this, but they're measuring the level of depression or the improvement in depression in a very short time frame, too close to the actual dosing or too close to the actual study, and it doesn't provide enough insight into the potential long-term benefits of psilocybin therapy. So in this study, they were testing basically the same thing, whether or not psilocybin at a single dose could help major depressive disorder while comparing that to placebo and having totally blinded raters to examine the onset, the action, and the durability of benefit and the safety profile over a six-week period. And maybe it doesn't seem as impactful because it gets talked about a lot, but it really is profound when you think about it. A single dose of a compound found in a little mushroom could significantly improve the lives of people who are suffering from something in which nothing else has been able to help. That really is profound and perhaps worthwhile to think about just how big of a deal that is. So here's what they did. They started with 104 participants. They were randomly split into two groups. One group who received placebo, which was niacin or vitamin B3, and the other group received 25 milligrams of psilocybin. One thing to clear up, because I always see it in the comments or in the discussion on Twitter, because people will say 25 milligrams, like that's a microdose, that's a super low dose. But remember, this is 25 milligrams of psilocybin, not of psilocybin containing mushrooms. And when you think about dried psilocybin containing mushrooms, you could have a huge array of different concentrations, but very generally, the concentration is about 1% psilocybin. So when you think of a 25 milligram dose of psilocybin, that would be roughly equivalent to about two and a half grams of dried mushrooms. They typically use synthetic psilocybin in these studies because it's easier to dose, it's easier to control, and admittedly, it'd be kind of hard to do this with just dried psilocybe cubensis, for example. So about 50 people received the psilocybin and about 50 people received the niacin, and then they went through the exact same protocol, which looks something like this. Six to eight hours of preparatory sessions with two facilitators, so these sessions before the dosing even began, and then they had a seven to 10 hour dosing session conducted in a comfortable room under the supervision of the same facilitators, and that was followed by four hours of post-dose integration sessions, during which participants were invited to discuss their dosing experience with the facilitators. During the dosing session, participants were encouraged to wear eye shades and listen to a curated playlist on headphones. So a lot of people might be familiar with this. This seems to be like a very common clinical protocol for dosing people. You have the preparatory sessions, then you have the dosing in a nice environment, and then of course the integration. So it's not just the mushrooms acting alone, it's like this whole psilocybin therapy experience. So after the sessions, they were able to rate the participants on something called the Montgomery Asperg Depression Score, which is like a standardized score for determining the level or the amount of depression, where the higher the score, the worse the depression. So obviously they were looking for a potential reduction in that score, and they measured these at different intervals all the way up to 43 days. And if we look at the results here, 
you can see uh, a pretty impressive result. So this was the baseline score, and you can see at two days, at eight days, at 15 days, the level of depression from the psilocybin group dropped significantly more than the level of depression from the niacin group. And I guess, interestingly enough, the niacin group or the placebo group did improve by quite a bit, but nowhere near as much as the psilocybin group. And I guess also interestingly in this study, what they were looking for was that duration. And as you can see, the improvement lasted all the way through that six week or 43 day period. And in fact, it seems to have gotten a little bit better as time went on, which is why the conclusion of this study is written very formally. These findings add to evidence that psilocybin when administered with psychological support may hold promise as a novel intervention for major depressive disorder. They also noted that no serious treatment emergent adverse events occurred during the study, but psilocybin treatment was associated with an increased rate overall solicited and severe treatment emergent adverse events, most of which occurred during or immediately after the dosing period. The adverse events overall seem to be relatively mild. They mentioned things like nausea, which is pretty common with psilocybin use. They also mentioned headaches, which who knows, that could be a number of different factors. But they also mentioned visual perceptual effects, which I'm not sure is really fair to call that an adverse event. With psilocybin, it's kind of part of the whole deal. Another thing I found interesting, but kind of goofy, and maybe this is just my misunderstanding, but it also said, in contrast to prior psilocybin trials for depression, there was not a significant reduction in depressive symptoms or psilocybin placebo difference in depressive symptom status at day two of the assessment. And you might think like, huh, that's weird. Like, I wonder what it is about day two that made such a difference. Like, is there some sort of weird come down effect or like what's going on at day two? But then it goes on to say that the day two assessment included the previous seven days. So five of the seven days in which they were asking about were before the dosing, so before the psilocybin. So it all just kind of seems like an irrelevant point. Another thing I found kind of interesting and was hoping that they would go into more detail on was they said psilocybin treatment did not evince the type of emotional blunting reported with standard antidepressant medicines, which is a really important point, right? Because you want people to feel better from whatever it is that they're suffering from, but you wanna be able to do that without side effects or being able to minimize side effects. And that seems to be a pretty important point when you're comparing something like psilocybin therapy to the alternatives. Finally, they did talk about some of the limitations of the study, specifically around the effectiveness of the placebo, which I thought was kind of funny. They say, first, the success of allocation blinding was not assessed, and it is likely that the acute psychoactive effects of psilocybin produced some degree of functional unblinding that may have contributed to the observed effect in psilocybin-treated participants and the increased dropout rate in niacin-treated patients. Which is another way to say, yeah, if you receive 25 milligrams of psilocybin, you're probably pretty aware that you didn't get the placebo. I have shown this meme before, but yeah, it seems really apt for this particular situation. Also, if you only received the vitamin B, it might be hard for you to sit there for the entire seven to 10 hour session when nothing's really happening and then go through the entire post integration session when there's really nothing to integrate which makes sense that the placebo group would have had a higher dropout rate or people just not finishing the study so again nothing really groundbreaking here but just a really important foundational piece where brick by brick we continue to learn more about these mushrooms and how they could potentially be used to help people in the future 
This episode of The Mushroom Show is brought to you by FreshCap Mushrooms, pure and powerful mushrooms to help you reach your health goals. If you've ever grown mushrooms before, and if you're watching the show, there's a very good chance you have, but if that's the case, you're probably pretty aware of the difference between grain spawn, which is this grain or sterilized grain covered in mycelium, and fruiting body, which is the actual mushroom part of the mushroom. One is mostly grain, the other is packed full of beneficial compounds. That is one of the reasons why we started FreshCap in the first place, in order to provide high quality mushroom supplements that are made from pure mushroom fruiting body, that are thoroughly extracted, and that are tested for active compounds, which are printed right on the label so you know exactly what you're getting when you're shopping for a mushroom supplement. If you want to check us out, head over to Amazon and search for FreshCap, or simply go to freshcap.com where you can use the code The Mushroom Show to get 10% off your first order. Let's get back to the show. You may have heard of the documentary Fantastic Fungi. It was released on Netflix in 2021 and absolutely catapulted mushrooms onto the main stage. Seriously though, it was wild. In all my time being involved in mushrooms, I'd never seen anything quite like it, seen anything be able to have quite that amount of impact. Almost everyone I knew was coming up to me and saying, hey, have you seen that new mushroom show on Netflix? And yes, in fact, I was lucky enough to see it well before it came out on Netflix. I loved it, and I really did think it was a great film. But the world needs more. And luckily, Drew Ames and his team from Coin and Log Creative have been working tirelessly now for over half a decade to bring you some of the most epic stories in mushrooms. I had the chance to meet Drew in Miami, where he was filming some stuff, and more recently in Telluride, which is just some of the many places he has been exploring the world of mushrooms. His film is called Life of a Mushroom, Picked, Prepped, and Eaten. They just dropped the trailer for it. Let's give it a watch. The mycorrhizal network is, is community, you know, at its core. It's just these highways of exchange of nutrients and energy and water and information. The health of the planet's mycelial network is representative of the health of the planet. And if we don't have these mycelial networks on Earth, nothing else is going to work. The planet would be a very different place without our decomposers. Mycelia is everywhere all around us, and every square inch of soil is a mile of mycelia. And from the mycelia, fruit mushrooms. Fungi are key components of carbon recycling in nature. They're extremely important as decomposers. They're extremely important as mycorrhizal association with plants. Most people pay them no heed, even though they're really, arguably, the most important organisms on the planet. All life really is dependent on them. Bacteria and microflora are essential in all biologic systems. There'd be no life without them. I'll try to point out what's edible, what's poisonous, maybe what's medicinal. So yeah, this is the midnight entoloma. That's a leptonia. Cantharellus californicus. Mushrooms are cool. I mean, they, they just really are. They're like these incredible things that pop up and disappear. And like some of them you can eat and they're delicious. Some of them you can eat and they'll kill you. Some of them you'll eat and you're gonna go to outer space. For 40 years, we have been talking about mushrooms as medicine. And it's only now that the culture is catching up. And when it comes to mushroom, immune health, brain health. This is a food that is wonderful for us. Oyster mushrooms, trumpets, enoki. Uh, we have some little bolites. These are chanterelles. They're so delicious. The demand for mushrooms is growing in the United States. We can grow a million pounds of mushrooms on one acre. Some of 
big old cottonwood morels. I love the woods. Idaho, by far the most beautiful, I would say. Being out here in Sonoma and going foraging is absolutely one of my favorite things to do. I find the best edible mushrooms up high in the Colorado mountains over 10,000 feet. People work their entire lives to be able to come down here and do research here in the Amazon because it's a gold mine. If this is Inosabe, then that is a find. Every year, a massive people descend on this place, mushroom crazies like myself. You find mushroom fanatics everywhere. We call it the Myco family. We're one big family, and when we come together, you really see that. The life of a mushroom is about connectivity, like connecting and giving and exchanging minerals and nutrients and love and gratitude and like the essence of life. Now obviously that looks super high quality, super well done, super well researched, looks like a lot of passion and energy has gone into it. So I'm super excited to watch it, but in the meantime, I got a chance to catch up with Drew and talk to him about his new documentary. Let's jump into the interview. So Drew Ames, welcome to The Mushroom Show. Hello. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk about your new documentary, but first of all, just to kind of level set, what is Life of a Mushroom Picked, Prepped and Eaten? Uh, I, I started on this over five and a half years ago. We're just walking in the woods. We wanted to make a thing about morel mushrooms. Uh, it, it was about that. And my, and my friend, uh, Tom, the Mushroom King, we kind of just kept snowballing from there. What, what, what do we know? What do we not know? And uh, this morel mushroom piece turned into something way bigger than that. And next thing you know, we're out uh, in Pennsylvania with the, with the agaricus mushrooms. And we go out west and, you know, and we end up in Ecuador. We end up all around. And it's, uh, like I said, it's been a long, long, long process. But uh, it's been an amazing process. Yeah. And when you first got into it, because, like, I know you've done some other documentaries historically that were kind of in the agricultural space. Was that kind of the idea when you first got into the mushroom idea? Was like, okay, well, I know people are, like, picking and eating more all mushrooms. There's probably a story here. Let's do a story on morels. Were you kind of surprised to learn that there was so much more to mushrooms than just that? Is that something that evolved organically or how did that come about? Right. And that's, that's basically where we were setting. We were setting this morel piece. We're going, what, what everyone loves morels in our area. A lot of people didn't know what morels were, which surprised the heck out of me. And, uh, you know, they were our local mushroom. And then I come to find out that there's other ones that are just delicious or as good along the way. And, uh, it evolved, into uh, a culinary piece more, but also into a piece that really a lot of our friends and our, and our family and our, and our colleagues, nobody really knew a lot about mushrooms in general. So it was just like, hey, how can we educate, you know, make this entertaining and also learn uh, ourselves throughout the process? Because it was, it was about that, because really we didn't know jack about mushrooms. And, and, uh, and what I did know ended up being uh, partially correct or, uh, or I've, my, my understanding of it has evolved way more now. Yeah, I love that kind of learn as you go approach, right? Because it's one of those like mushrooms for sure are one of those rabbit holes where the more you learn, the more there is to learn. And I'm sure that kind of makes it difficult when you're trying to wrap up a documentary because every day there's new things happening. And like you said, you've been making this for, I think you said almost six years. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're five and a half. We're on six years now. You know, it's either embarrassingly at six years or 
but it's not really because the, we've been working on so many commercial projects in between other films. So it really just started out as a YouTube video, which never became of uh, me and my buddy in the, in the woods. And then it just next thing you know, Hey, let's go to fire morels in Montana. Hey, let's go to here and here. And then next thing you know, I'm sitting there going, this is bigger than him. This is bigger than a project that I even understand, you know, and I, and I had to go and really ask the question. I'm like, what is a mushroom? And I ask that in every interview now, what is a mushroom? And people give me all kinds of answers. That, that's so funny. It's like one of those things where like, yeah, you think that would be a super simple answer, but it's not. It's one of these things you can explore for a very, very long time. And I think the interesting thing about the timeline too, of when you've been putting together this documentary is mushrooms, or at least the public's perception of mushrooms has changed quite a bit in that time, right? When I think back six years ago, for example, when we were just getting started with Fresh Cap, like we're kind of teaching how to people or teaching people how to grow mushrooms, all this kind of stuff. But there wasn't a lot of good information out there. But since then, it has absolutely exploded. I think one of the big reasons for that was actually a documentary, one called Fantastic Fungi, which kind of like, you know, catapulted mushrooms onto the onto the main scene with uh, on Netflix. But I really think that, you know, your documentary taking a different angle can do a very similar thing and introduce a whole new wave of people to mushrooms. So what is it specifically about Pick Prepped and Eaten that you're hoping to achieve um, in terms of like public awareness and teaching people about mushrooms that might be different from something like fantastic fungi. Mushrooms are, are, are cool. I mean, I think a lot of times people just, uh, walk past them, you know, and we don't really think about them too much, you know, and we talk about that in the documentary. I want people to understand that they're around us and they're bigger than what we realize, but also not to be scared of them. There's really great ones to eat out there that aren't the, just the run-of-the-mill ones and the run-of-the-mill ones that you see in the store aren't just run-of-the-mill ones you know they're really great mushrooms they're really delicious full of great they're very nutritious and it's and that's something that it took me a second to understand it too because i thought that they were pumped with poisons and stuff i don't know what i thought they were not really but you know what i'm saying i really didn't know what they were pumped with and and really to come to find out they weren't pumped with anything at all like it just kind of blew my mind on how amazing that they grew in the places they were. And that was on the large scale. So when you see a large farm like that and, and you know, that's how they're doing it. When you go to the grocery store that, that for me, for one, when, Hey, I, I want to eat those. And I do now more. And, um, and so I want the public to be more aware of mushrooms in a positive way. Mushrooms are going to be a lot of the future. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that it could be for medicine. It could be for building material. It could be for remediation and all kinds of things like uh, mushrooms are the future. So, uh, but they're not necessarily the only future, but they will be a big, a big part of it though. Yeah. And I think that's a big theme that runs throughout your documentary is without mushrooms, a lot of the things that we take for granted just wouldn't exist. Right. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is how core mushrooms are to our central everyday lives and how they touch so many different aspects of our lives. Back to the, the documentary making, right? I think people see the end product. You see this like one and a half hour, like the two hour film. And they think it's just like wrapped up in this nice little bow. Can you just talk a little bit about how much actually goes into that? Like how much work it actually takes to put like a, a finished product of a documentary on the big screen so that everybody else can enjoy? How much goes into making something like this is a lot, you know, and there's many, many hours and lots of stuff that sits on the cutting room uh, floor. And sometimes an interview might be the best interview ever. It's just, it, and it could be awesome explaining great things about mushrooms, but it's a standalone piece in its own regard. It does, just doesn't fit the story. In any project, you're not going to be able to use all the Buffalo and video production. Everyone knows that. There's there's all kinds of stats that you can have for every 
one minute is, you know, 10 minutes or one minute is 60 minutes or whatever. There's all kinds of things you can hear, but it is a lot that gets cut out, including audio. So uh, we're, and we're definitely going through all that um, and going to make the best story that we can make for sure. Is there anything that like you had wanted to get into the film that you hadn't had a chance to uh, go and capture yet or some interview that you really wanted that you haven't had a chance to capture yet or anything that you're missing and hopefully we can put it out in the universe right now and, and get it for you? Oh, right, man. I need to get a hold of Derek Sarno, I think. he's. I think I want to get a hold of that guy because that guy does some amazing cooking stuff. So Derek okay. Sarno, I'll get a hold of you. And uh, <laughs> let's see, who, who else? There's some, there's some other cats out there too, you know, like, uh, wouldn't it be cool to have like Billy Strings or somebody like that in the in the film? Like somebody who like really is uh, a mushroom fan that's in pop culture, you know. Uh, that, that, that's you know that's I, I'm I have some I have some star power in this, but I'm not. Never, this never was about star power. Our film is really about the mushroom. The mushroom doesn't have a voice, so how do we give a mushroom a voice? Hmm. That's that's it. That's what that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to to let the mushroom speak um, through our interviewees the people that have vast knowledge on this. This isn't one person. This isn't one star. This isn't one thing. There's so many people in this that by the time it's said and done, um, it's, it's going to be like, wow, who was in that? You know I mean? It's going to be a lot of people in it. And, and that's, and that's great, you know, um, because we didn't want it to be like, Hey, this is that one guy telling me again, how this is going to solve the problem of that. You know, we didn't want it to be, uh, just one centered person going to one festival somewhere talking about stuff like that was, we wanted the mushrooms to be able to speak and give breath themselves. And, and also this is the culinary venture too. You know, there hasn't been a lot of films about culinary mushrooms done um, that, that we're still kind of talking about mushrooms in general. It wasn't, this isn't just a cooking show, you know? So, and, and culinary mushrooms are, I mean, guys, we eat every day, you know what I mean? Like, and, and a lot of us take a supplement or eat a mushroom or something um, either once a day or multiple times a week. So, um, you know, let's put them on the forefront. That's what we were kind of looking at. We were like, why, why not? You know, they're ready. That's awesome. Well, I'm obviously very excited to see it. If people want to learn more, if people want to follow along, where can they sign up or, or follow along to, to follow the progress here? Right. Go to uh, life-mushroom.com and uh, they can go from there and you can sign up for an email too. Uh, normally, I wouldn't tell people to sign up because I wouldn't always do that. But if it's something you're interested in, I say sign up. Why not? You're going to get info about this, so go to there, uh, like the Facebook page. That would probably be one of the easiest ways to get info because we'll be now consistently keeping stuff up to date on that because we have something happening now. We just we just released our trailer, so this is like kind of all – it's all kind of new. We were in Telluride together, and it, the Saturday night um, after the parade, um, about a couple hours after the parade, the, the trailer uh, – you know, dropped out there and I had people randomly texting me and stuff. And it was, it got kind of, uh, it was kind of wild for a second, but it was neat. And uh, so we're excited to get it out there to the world. Things are getting real. We're just as excited to see it as well. Drew, thank you so much for joining us today on the Mushroom Show. Awesome. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure and uh, I can't wait to talk to you sometime soon. Again, that is dropping hopefully this year. So if you want to stay on top of it and make sure you get a chance to watch it, 
Go ahead and check out the links in the description to follow along, and I'll probably be talking about it on this show as soon as the full video launches. And that's it for this episode of The Mushroom Show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for watching. It really is a pleasure to be able to come up here every couple of weeks and tell some stories and mushrooms and hang out with you all. So again, if you like The Mushroom Show, if you like mushrooms, go ahead and hit that like button. It really does help the channel grow. It helps spread the spores. And if you want to see future episodes of the show and help us get to our goal of reaching 500,000 subscribers this year, go ahead and hit that subscribe button as well. We really do appreciate it so much. We'll see you in the next episode.